Well, like I said, it is good to be back again this morning. Um, I don't know if meet and greet times are the right thing to do, but you know what? We haven't done it in a long time, so I, we can say I panicked, but I don't think I did. Um, anyway, we, we are glad to be back home. We had a good time on vacation. We were gone with you last week. It looked like you all had a good time um, being together then, and I, I really actually loved the idea that Bruce had of putting the... the poster boards on the windows at the care center. I thought that was a great idea. Um, I'm a little jealous that I didn't come up with it, but um, I thought it was great that that, that was something that you all got to be a part of. So um, we, we are glad to be home. It's always good to be back with you all. Um, so last Sunday, I, I just want to tell you what we were doing. I was with you guys online, but last Sunday we were doing, we were doing this. Could you put those first two up? Yeah. Yeah, big fish, big fish. So, so you can just tell how proud Cam is. And if you look at Molly close enough, you can see that she's looking like, I don't want to touch the fish. Um, she really didn't like it whenever I told her she had to kiss the fish before I threw it back. Um, but, but go ahead and put the next one up because I think he had the most fun. Um, and I can do this because my kids are little and they're not in here yet. So um, they'll get a little bit older and I won't be able to do this. So here it is, um, Enoch with Dorito all over his face. So... Anyway, that's what we got to do last week, but I actually want you to think back to two weeks ago, to two weeks ago when I told you that we were going to start a new series, brand new series, and we were going to start looking at, at what the church is, how the church operates. Um, and I decided that I was going to title this, this series I- Identity, Identity. And the reason for that, I hope, becomes increasingly clear as we go throughout the next six weeks. So, like I said, please, if you're, if you're here today, y'all are here today, so I'm glad you're here today, but I would encourage you to do your best to at least listen for the next, next six weeks. I encourage you to listen every week if you can, but specifically the next six weeks, because one topic builds on the next and then on the next, and hopefully we'll get a pretty good idea of what it means to be the church. So starting today, we're going to start covering some pretty serious, some very important topics within the local church very serious and important topics just within our local church context, much less the bigger context. So um, I think some of these things are already pretty well understood. I think that we have a pretty good grasp on them. I think others may not always have the best understanding. I think there are some that are pretty difficult and hard to understand. Um, So we're going to take our time and we're going to walk through these. But today, I think most of us have a pretty good grasp on today's topic. I think most of us have an understanding of today's topic, but we still need to discuss it. And today we're going to talk about baptism. Baptism, okay? Now, I will admit, though, baptism can be difficult. Baptism can be a difficult topic to discuss, and that's for several reasons. And I just want to lay some of these out. Okay, the first reason it's pretty difficult is because there is not one place in the New Testament that you can turn to and say, here is the complete doctrine of baptism spelled out in this passage. You can look anywhere you want, and it's not there. There is not one place that's just perfectly spelled out. So instead, what we have to do is we have to piece the doctrine of baptism together using all of the biblical text. We have to use the whole Bible and start piecing together what is baptism. Why is it so important? Which is exactly what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. I'm going to try to piece together what the Bible says about baptism. Second reason it's difficult is because there have been so many different ideas concerning this doctrine. 
There are all sorts of ideas about what baptism is and what baptism really does. There are all sorts of ideas about baptism that have come out, many of which I believe are shown to be clear contradictions of Scripture. Others, I think, are, are gray areas that are really difficult to understand, and I think a lot of that is because the biblical evidence is so spread out. And I think for that reason, people have misunderstood this doctrine. So, I want to tell you that I am going to do my best this morning to approach this topic with as much humility and as much grace as possible. Because it's difficult. It is difficult. As a matter of fact, there are people who I respect and I love deeply, who I think love Jesus with everything they have, who know God's word and want to apply it to their lives, who disagree with my conclusions on baptism. It's difficult. It can be hard. But, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we should shy away from the truth that the Bible teaches. We shouldn't shy away from it. And I'm pretty convinced that the Bible has very specific things to say about it. And for that reason, the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean that we're going to shy away from what I believe the Bible shows to be true. So we're still going to lean into that. We're going to lean into what God's Word says regarding baptism. And to do this, what I've done is I've put together one sentence... I did my best to summarize baptism in one sentence. So that way it's easier to grasp. Now, I admit it's a long sentence, but it's still one sentence. Lots of commas, very few periods. Um, but after I wrote this sentence out, I decided that, that not just having what Jared thinks about baptism, I, I decided it would be better to get the backing of our elders on this. So I actually wrote this sentence, I sent it to all of our elders, and I say, is there anything that needs to be added, or is there anything that needs to be reworded? And it had unanimous approval. So we said, this is good. And I, that, I will add one caveat there. They said, as long as you're going to expand on this within a sermon. So we're going to expand on it within a sermon. But the sentence itself is what we're going to be building off of. So the reason I tell you that about our elders is because I don't want you to think this is some harebrained idea I came up with while I was hiding up north in the woods. Okay, this is something that all of our elders have agreed to. We say this is what baptism is. This is what we hold to here at Christian Fellowship Church. This is what we believe. This is what we believe that God has revealed about baptism in his word. So, unfortunately, there isn't a place I can just tell you to open your Bibles to right now. There isn't a place that I can do that. Um, instead, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be dissecting this sentence, and I'm going to do my best to show you where each point in the sentence comes from in God's Word. So if you take notes, have a pen, and I, want you to, I just want to encourage you to write down these scripture references. Most of them, Lord willing, will be up on the screen. Um, we are going to do our best to get them up on the screen, but I will do my best to um, make sure we reference them because we are going to be jumping around quite a bit. Um, so... All of that to say, here's our sentence. Here's our one sentence, okay? Water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with him in his death, burial, and resurrection by being submerged into and raised out of water. Like I said, that's a long sentence. I'm going to read that one more time. Water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with him in his death, burial, and resurrection by being submerged into and raised out of water. Okay. 
That's the best I can do while I'm hiding in the woods. Okay? So, like I said, we're going to do our best to dissect this sentence. We're going to go one piece at a time. And, again, one thing builds on the next. So we're going to see, hopefully, how we came up with this. All right? So, first of all, water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord. Baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord. As a matter of fact, people always want to ask. People always want to ask, does a person really need to be baptized? Does a person really need to be baptized? And I admit, I used to struggle with this. I used to wrestle with this quite a bit. Like, I never believed that baptism was the saving agent, but so, so does a person have to be baptized? Do they really need to be baptized? But even as I wrote this sentence, saying that it was a simple act of obedience also didn't seem strong enough. It didn't seem like it was weighty enough. Um, actually, this week, as, as I sent it to our elders, I told one of our elders that uh, I, I considered adding one word. I considered adding the word necessary, saying it was a necessary act of obedience. I considered adding that, but I thought that that might give the wrong impression. Somehow saying that, that baptism was what saves you. And I don't want to give you that impression. I don't want to. One of the ideas that I don't believe is biblical at all is that somehow God's grace isn't really effectual until a person responds by being baptized. I don't think that's a biblical idea. In fact, there are many churches, many churches, many denominations out there that will teach that baptism is in fact a saving agent. That going into the water and coming back up is what saves a person. And others will dilute the doctrine of baptism to say that it's that is strictly a person's faith and that saves them so their actions don't matter and you, can, you don't have to be baptized. And I think both of those extremes are wrong. I don't think either extreme is right. The truth is that when God justifies a person in faith, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, God justifies them wholly and completely, totally, end of story. You are saved by his grace through his faith, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. There is no work that will save you, including baptism. Baptism is not a saving agent. And just so you know, Ephesians 2, 8 is the only place that the Bible says this. Faith is what saves you. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that you are declared righteous by faith? Not by baptism. You're declared righteous by faith. That's what makes you declared righteous. And if baptism is required to be saved, nobody seems to be able to explain how the thief on the cross is going to be with Jesus in paradise. It's illogical. Jesus promises the man who's dying next to him that you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized. Baptism is not the saving agent. It is an act of obedience that we need to recognize isn't just simple act of obedience. It is weighty. It is important. It is significant. It's not some minor thing that we can do if we choose to. There are multiple authors, I noticed this week, that, that said the same thing. Multiple authors said the same thing, which always catches my attention. They all said that apart from the thief on the cross, the Bible knows nothing of unbaptized Christians. 
the New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized followers of Jesus apart from the thief on the cross. And it's my opinion that if the thief on the cross were able to get down off that cross, he would have gone and found some water. Ha! If you are saved by grace, you follow in baptism. They are, they are almost inseparable. Faith, then baptism. Faith, repentance, baptism. It's an act of obedience. We follow. So, it isn't as if it's something that a person should, well, I'm saved, I'm going to wait five years and see if I still want to be baptized. No. Follow Jesus in obedience. Do what he's called us to do. And if you believe in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you need to get to it. Get in some water. All right? But back to the point at hand. I said it's an act of obedience. An act of obedience. There are several places in the New Testament that show us that baptism was a command that we are to obey. It's a command that we're to obey. If you're a follower of Jesus, first of all, you'll do what he did. And I don't know if you all remember this from Scripture, but Jesus was baptized. Not for the remission of his sins, but because he was obedient to the Father. So he acted in obedience. And if we're followers of Jesus, we'll follow him in baptism. Second, he commanded his followers to baptize. Right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing. Baptize them. You are expected to be baptized. In other words, those who have become disciples of Jesus need to be baptized. And there's going to be more on that here in just a moment. But then, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter at Pentecost, after his sermon, he tells the people, what are they supposed to do? Repent and be baptized. Be baptized. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Paul is giving his own testimony. He says that when he came to Ananias, Ananias told him to go and be baptized. The assumption is whenever you come to Jesus, you will be baptized. And I hope that you get the point. The point is, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, what in the world are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Go and be baptized. There's a clear command from God to do so. And that's all before we get to the letters that Paul writes or John writes where they, or Peter writes. And they talk about this baptism that's just assumed that followers of Jesus are going to do. Go and be baptized. So water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord. But we're going to keep building. It's an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin. Let's stop there. Okay? So a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin. Essentially what this is is what's become known as believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is the title that this has been given, right? But before I show you why, why this is what we hold to, let me, let me show you what we don't believe. Okay? Sometimes it's easier to see what you do believe if you look at what you don't believe and you understand why you don't believe that. Does that make sense? I hope you all are tracking with that. That was a lot of words in very, very little time. Why do we believe what we believe? Well, here's what we don't believe. There are two camps who don't follow unbelievers, at least two camps, I'm going to show you two camps, that don't follow believers' baptism, who don't do that. Okay, first, there are those who, who baptize infants as a, sort of, as a sort of dedication. 
That's a pretty common practice across Christendom. There's a lot of people who will baptize infants as a sort of dedication. The problem with this is that there is no specific biblical evidence for this at all. None. Whatsoever. Um, this just doesn't, it's just not there. I, I was questioning whether or not I should put this in my notes, but I thought, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, so understand that I just, that's why this is here. I was reading one book that was co-written by two different scholars who have different opinions on baptism. One is a paedo-baptist, which means he baptizes children, and the other is, is a, somebody who holds to believers' baptism. Well, they came to the chapter on baptism, and, and the paedo-baptist was getting ready to write his section arguing for the baptism of infants, and he got a note from his friend who believes in believers' baptism. And he gets this note, and the front side of this note, note says... I have I have enclosed all of the evidence, all of the biblical evidence for pedobaptism. He opens the card and it's blank. I'm not sharing that to bash anybody or to knock anything. I thought it was funny, and this was the infant baptizer who was who was writing this. Okay, there is no clear biblical evidence of anybody baptizing a child. And I mean, these two scholars are having friendly banter back and forth. They're, they're just going back and forth. So I don't think there were any hurt feelings by any means. I don't want that for anybody else. But the point is, there is no clear biblical evidence that justifies the baptism of infants. It's just, it's not there. The place that they tend to go to would be Acts chapter 16, verse 33, where there is an entire family baptized. There's an entire family baptized. But the problem here is that there is no clear reference to a child being baptized, and there is no need to assume that young children were a part of that passage. In fact, you go back just one verse. I have Acts chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. Um, yeah, look at that. It is up there. Man, you guys are on it. So it says, And he spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in the house before he takes them out to baptize them. There's an assumption that as he speaks the word, these people who are baptized have the ability to hear and comprehend what he was speaking. Then they were baptized. Again, it is after they hear the word, then they respond to the word. This says nothing about an infant going out and being baptized. So the indication is that they understood what Paul was speaking to them. So look, if a person wants to dedicate a child, I have no issue with that. I take no issue with that. If somebody wants to dedicate their child in front of the church, that's fine. I'd be happy to, happy to bring you and your family up. I'd be happy to pray over you. I'd be happy to have the church gather around you and, say that, and pledge their support of you as a family. I am all for that. That sounds fine. But there is no need to take an ordinance like baptism and twist it so that it means something that it shouldn't. Y'all tracking with that? Tracking. All right. Apparently, I listen to Matt Chandler. That's a Chandlerism. Um, anyway, so that's the first camp. That's the first camp, okay? The second also holds the infant baptism, but this camp says that baptism is a sign of the new covenant, much like circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. Now, let me say this there is some validity to that. There is some validity to that. Baptism is now a sign or an identification with the new covenant. It is. Sure it is. The problem is, when we take it and say it needs to be administered at a person's physical birth, that's a problem. 
Baptism is to be administered at birth, but not at a physical birth. Instead, it needs to be at the spiritual rebirth. When we come alive in Christ, in salvation, then we are baptized, identifying the washing away of the old self and the being born to Christ, being born in Him. Okay? So, there is a good reason to believe that these two things are linked. It's all over the Scripture. There is a clear correlation between circumcision and baptism. Um, a passage we just talked about a few weeks ago at our young adult Bible study, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. It's a text that I actually thought about preaching straight from for baptism. It says, You also... You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by hands by putting off the body of flesh in the baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. There is a connection between baptism and circumcision. There is. Or Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It talks about the circumcision of the heart and how the external thing isn't the important part, but the heart is the key, and the external should, and I believe will, follow the internal. Where the heart goes if you are circumcised in the heart. Like if your heart has changed, then you follow Jesus, which means you will have that external sign of baptism. Point is this. When a person is reborn... They receive a sort of spiritual circumcision, the washing away of the old self, the removal of the old self. It's an external sign of belonging to God's covenant community. Okay? So, that's what we don't believe. All that to say, what we do believe, what we do believe is that baptism comes after conversion. comes after we have come to faith in Jesus. As a matter of fact, the scriptures, they, they have a close tie between repentance and baptism. When we come to faith in Jesus, it always includes repentance. When we realize that we are sinful beings before God and we say, I need Jesus as my Savior because of my sin, it will naturally cause us to repent of that sin. We turn, or better yet, we die to our old selves and we live in Christ. But notice that when people come to believe in Jesus in the book of Acts, what are they told to do? We've already mentioned Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaches, they say, what do we do? Repent and be baptized. The two things go together. You repent, you're baptized. The people have come to faith, now they live out their faith. Look at the people coming to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. It says, people were coming to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. They're repenting as they're being baptized. They're confessing these sins as they're being baptized. And further than that, repentance is closely tied to faith. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, repent and believe. If you believe, we've already established this, what will we do? We will be baptized. There's a tie between faith and repentance and baptism. They go together. You have faith, you repent of sin, and you are baptized. Whew. So, we get this picture, and it happens over and over and over again. Even when the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter, Acts chapter 8, whenever this Ethiopian eunuch hears the word of God, he understands the word of God, how does he respond? Responds by saying, here's some water. What's stopping me from being baptized? He comes to faith in Jesus. He acts in obedience. 
Well, let me make something clear. Obedience must be an act of faith. Must be an act of faith or else it's useless. Okay? Obedience must be an act of faith or else it's useless. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he gives this really impressive resume. Gives this awesome resume saying how, you know, if anybody has reason to brag, it's me. Look at me. And he says, look at this. But then he gets to verses 7 and 8 and he says, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He could have been obedient, but he says it was a loss. Look how obedient Paul was. He did everything right. He had all of it, but it wasn't worth anything to him compared to knowing Jesus. Obedience apart from faith is useless. It's a loss. It doesn't do any good. And he goes on to talk about knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection and being conformed to his death, which we're going to talk about more in just a moment. <laughs> Baptism is to come after faith in Jesus, but they should be closely tied together. If you come to faith in Jesus, don't wait five years before you're baptized. Don't wait. Okay, I want to encourage you, don't wait. Identify with Jesus. Which brings us to our third part, which tells us the why of these two things being so closely tied together, repentance and baptism. Okay, so water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what we're doing in baptism. We're being obedient, but we're also publicly identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Which is part of the reason I love the title identity for this. We're identifying with him. He becomes our identity. But the reason that repentance and baptism are so closely tied is because of what's being symbolized in baptism. What we're saying as we're baptized. It's an identification with Jesus in his death. Which means that we must necessarily die to the old self. Right? So if we're identifying with Jesus in his death, we're saying we are dying to the old self. And this is the declaration of Paul again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is our declaration as we're baptized. We're saying, I don't live, but Christ lives in me. It's what we're declaring. It's what we're saying as we identify with Jesus. Essentially, what happens whenever we go down into the water, we're telling the world that we are dead to ourselves. We're being buried in the water. We're saying, I am dead, and I'm being put into the grave. We're there with Jesus. The old me is gone. New life is going to be fundamentally different because it's not my life. It's going to be the life of Jesus, which is the only true life. <sighs> so, that's why I tell you that this is a public identification or a public proclamation. Because again, this is the example we get from God's word. This is what we see as we identify, as we proclaim. And we don't do it alone. I would encourage you, don't be baptized alone. Do it and declare Jesus as you do it. And it is a biblical idea. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus goes down to the river to be baptized. And then you know what? It actually says that there's other people there when Jesus goes down to do this. 
He's publicly declaring that he is now starting his public ministry. Acts chapter 2, there are thousands of people who are being baptized together. It wasn't done in isolation. In one way, baptism is to be a sort of, sort of premiere, a sort of coming out party, where you say, I am no longer alive to myself. Instead, my life belongs to Jesus. We are publicly identifying with Christ, saying, he is my life. But it's bigger than some premiere, some makeover. It's declaring that you have been brought back from the dead. That's what we're saying in baptism. We're saying, look, I'm dead, and I'm being raised to new life. And I hope that as you are baptized, you want it to be done being surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ, around, surrounded by your family, surrounded by friends, surrounded by non-believers, so that you can say, look, I live for Jesus. Like, I want him to be my life. I hope that that's what you want now, I know, I, since I referenced the Ethiopian eunuch, some of you may be thinking, well, okay, there's this guy, but he was baptized by himself, right? Of course he was. Yeah, I know. Philip was there because somebody had to dunk him, but, I mean, the guy was there, essentially the only one, right? Nobody was there to witness this. But keep in mind that the Ethiopian eunuch may have been the only Christian in that area at that time. He may have been the entirety of the church in that place. So generally speaking, what we see is that baptism is an opportunity for what I heard called this week divine theater. We're saying, look, I am identifying with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Publicly declaring that Jesus is our life. And think about this. If we aren't dying to ourselves and baptized and being... If we aren't dying to ourselves in baptism, being born again, what are we, what are we doing? Like, if that's not what it is, then it's just getting wet in front of people, right? It's declaring that Jesus is our life, that we are identifying with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. One of the coolest examples, of, uh, I think, of baptism is, is Paul's baptism, as he gives his own testimony in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. So Ananias telling him, and now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name, declaring Jesus, calling on him. Water baptism, it's an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection by being submerged into and raised out of water. Okay. Okay. This is another point of contention for centuries. It has been. The, the mode of baptism. Should it be, should you be completely immersed? Should you be poured over? Should you be sprinkled on? What's the right way to do baptism? Do you have to be completely submerged? Is that the way it needs to be done? Like I said, it's been a point of contention. But here at Christian Fellowship Church, we are... Very clear on what we believe in this regard. As a matter of fact, if you open our, if you were to go and see our church constitution, it says right there, a requirement for membership is baptism by immersion. We require immersion for membership here. And the reason for that is because we believe it's the most biblical means of baptism. 
for several reasons. And I just want to spell these reasons out. First of all, the word baptism itself is the Greek word baptizo. baptizo. That's the Greek word, okay? And it literally means to dip, to sink, or to submerge. Literally what we are saying as we say that we are going to baptize someone is we are saying, I am going to dip someone or I am going to submerge someone. That's literally what we're saying. So then to sprinkle, it kind of takes away from what the word itself means. Okay, so the first argument is just from, well, the word baptism itself. Second, the biblical evidence shows us people going down into the water then coming back up out of the water. Since we've used the example of the Ethiopian eunuch multiple times, let's look again. Acts chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 says, So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized, or he submerged him. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Did you catch that? He went down into the water, came up out of the water. Or Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, whenever... <laughs> which says that at Jesus' baptism, it says as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending. And again, the only way you can come up out of water is if you have gone down into water. Shows us that he was submerged in water. And the third reason this is the most biblical means of baptism is just think about what we've said so far. Think about what we've already talked about person who comes to faith in Jesus publicly identifies with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Sprinkling or pouring does not, is not much of a death, burial, and resurrection. We are being buried into the water. We are putting put down into the water, coming up, representing, representing his death and new life. We need to completely die to ourselves. Completely die to ourselves. Then... We are declaring through baptism that we are alive again in Christ. We're alive again in him as we're raised up out of the water. This is what it says there in Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. We're buried with him. It's what we're signifying. This is why we believe it's so crucial to be baptized by immersion. It's what the word means. It demonstrates what is happening here in this divine theater the best representation of what we're doing. So water baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord in which a person who has come to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin publicly identifies with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection by being submerged into and raised out of water. So what? Well, I hope, I hope that after all that you see that baptism is important. I, I don't know that I could say it many more times without you getting the point like, Baptism is important. It's significant. So I want to address three groups from here. Three groups of people here. Okay? First group would be those who have come to faith in Jesus and have already been baptized. Okay, I want to address that group. If this is you, are you still representing Jesus? Are you still representing Jesus with your life? Are you still in love with the God who saved you by giving you a way to be raised from the dead? Do you still have the love for that God? Is your, is your life, your life still this incredible drama showing how God takes a dead man and brings them to life? 
Does that describe you? And if it's not, I'm not just trying to beat you up, okay? That, uh, my goal isn't just to make you feel guilty so that you act better. I mean, I, I think it's been proven that that doesn't work. Russ is laughing. He's like, man, I feel guilty. I'm going to act better now. That's not my goal. My point is this. Jesus forgave you of your sins, but you, you declared that the old self, your old self has been put to death with Jesus. When you were baptized, you declared that my old self is dead. So if you are still clinging to the old self, essentially what you're doing is clinging to a corpse. Why are you clinging to a corpse whenever you have the life of Jesus that you could cling to? What are you clinging to? So if you have been baptized, if you have come to faith and you've been baptized, cling to the new life that God has given you in Jesus. Second group I want to address, those of you who have come to faith but you have not been baptized. Because there are those people who have come to faith in Jesus, believe in him, trust in him as their life, but they have not followed him in baptism. My question is, what in the world are you waiting for? Stop it. I just want to like smack you a little bit. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to hit anybody. That was a bad joke. I shouldn't have threatened that. But no, if you have come to faith in Jesus, follow him. Be obedient to him. Repent of your sins and follow Jesus in obedience. Declare that he is your life because he says as much. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, you're saying as much. So publicly identify with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Declare that he is your life. Declare that he's your Lord. Declare that he saved you. Commit to him and make him your identity. Make his life your identity. So be baptized. The third group of those who have not come to faith, those who don't know Jesus, I want to address you also, okay? Right now, today, you have an option. The question is, will you live for yourself or will you die to yourself and come to life in Jesus? And the reason I ask it that way is because there's this funny thing that's, that's in Scripture, okay? There's this funny idea that says that if you're living for yourself, you're ultimately going to lose your life anyway. But if you die to yourself, you die to yourself, you can be given true life, real life. So this week I heard this idea of, of freedom. Um, and I don't even know who to credit. Honestly, I read, I was on vacation, so I did my best to read some. Um, so I did some reading, I was doing some listening. I don't even know who to credit this, but this was a really cool analogy that I thought was really good. Okay, there's this idea of a fish. Since I was fishing, maybe that's what it was. No. There, just think about a fish. You can look at a fish and you see a fish swimming around. They've got the whole ocean to swim in. Like there's this ocean that this fish is out swimming around and they're completely free. They can go anywhere they want. This fish is free to do as he pleases. It's got the whole ocean. But, but think about this. What happens if you take that fish out of the water and you put him on land? Same fish. Is he still free? No, he's going to die. Why? Because he's not living according to his design. When we live apart from God's design for us, we're a lot like this fish. We're a lot like this fish. Ultimately, we're going to die. 